Well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts 17. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 926. This morning, we are going to be finishing our chapter, starting at verse 22 and reading through verse 33. I want to start this morning with a little bit of a poll. How many of you would describe yourself as a religious person? See a raise of hands. Okay. I've got two. How many of you would not describe yourself as a religious person? Oh, that's, you know, I kind of expected, I expected that to happen. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines religion as a personal set or institutionalized system of attitudes, beliefs, and practices, the service and worship of God, or the supernatural, the ardent devotion to a set of principles or beliefs. That's a little broader, I think, than the way it gets used in our culture. There is a stigma. The reason I expected most of you to raise your hand when I asked you that, although most people probably outside, if they saw you here, would say, well, that person's obviously a religious person. There's a stigma around that that word religion. There's a stodginess to it. I think an association with superstition that sophisticated people typically want to avoid. In my experience, people are quick to tell me that they aren't very religious, even when you're talking to them about God. And you'll usually find that when you do, they have very strong opinions and beliefs about him, even even if it's to say that they don't believe that he exists or that he cannot be known. Even in churches, you can make most people squirm if you call them religious. It's very popular to hear, especially evangelicals today, fly under the banner of the phrase, relationship, not religion. Now, I don't have a problem with that. I think I understand the spirit that's there. Religion's like one of those sticky, slappy hands that you get from the grocery store. It always manages to pick up every bit of hair and dust in the room. Religion is, is a word that has had a lot of stuff stuck to it, and it makes it kind of fuzzy and undesirable to most people. The truth is that humans are more religious than we'd like to admit. And if we'll indulge the Merriam-Webster's definition, we find that people everywhere do, in fact, have a set of attitudes, beliefs, practices, services, and principles that rule over the way they live their lives. We may not all bear degrees, but we are all, in some way, theologians. Not everyone is a good theologian, but we are theologians. To say something about God is is to say something doctrinal. We cannot escape this. It is hardwired into us. We all live in service to what we prioritize as worthy. We are all worshipers of something, even if that thing is ultimately ourselves. Our impulse, I think, to want to distance ourselves from that label of being religious isn't necessarily a bad thing. If being religious means being superstitious or being blindly committed to the control of a system or putting stock in in certain rites and practices that somehow make us worthy in God's sight, then yes, we should want to put as much distance between ourselves and that as we possibly can. But if we accept the definition that religion is a right devotion to the truth, the kind of commitment that steers our lives in the service of God in devotion to righteousness and the truth, then I think we can say that our desire should not be to want to distance ourselves from that. 
Rather, we should say that our desire is to have true religion, true commitment to the God who is there, who has revealed himself in the world, and most important, most importantly, in the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. Our desire is to have a right worship of what is truly worthy, truly satisfying, truly glorious. Our desire is to have a real relationship with the one true God that which causes us to live in obedience to him and righteous holiness with him. That's what we want. So wherever you fell on that question of are you religious or not, I think we all agree that as believers is what we want. This is true religion. That, that is the same sort that James commends in chapter 1, verses 27, verse 27 of his letter to the church where he says, he says that this is good and right religion. This is not the religion that Paul encountered when he entered the city of Athens, seeing idol after idol created in the image of man. And God used Paul to shed light on that situation. And that's what we're looking at today. Last week, we saw the heart of Paul. We considered Paul's heart for the people of Athens. As he waited on Silas and Timothy to rejoin him from Berea, Luke tells us that his spirit was so provoked within him that he could not wait, but began to reason and debate in the synagogue and in the marketplace with anyone who would listen, sharing the good news of the gospel with the people of the city. As he did, he debated with the philosophers of the city, and eventually they took him to the Areopagus in an effort to better understand what he was saying, which sets the stage for the address that we're looking at today. As we read this together, you are going to see Paul highlight the importance of a true knowledge of God for true worship. True knowledge of God produces true worship. We are going to see that God intends for people everywhere to know him and to enjoy his glory. We are going to see that the heart of God is for the nations, that he desires to rescue them from their ignorance and unbelief, to have a true relationship with him. And we are going to see how all of this hinges on the completed work of Christ, which leads us to, and I don't ever do this, but I'm giving you the main idea before we start the text. It leads us to this main idea, which is this, that God does not intend for us to be merely religious, but to have a deep abiding relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's read together. If you will, please stand with me as I read from God's word, starting verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, 
that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even of, your, of some of your own poets have said, for we indeed, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, if there's anything that stands out about Paul's address to the people of Athens, it's the way that he starts by reaching them where they were. When Paul preached the gospel in the synagogues as he traveled through Asia, he did not have to teach the Jews or the devout men and women who were gathered there that there was one God who created the world. He did not have to convince them of the faithfulness and the authority of the scriptures. He did not have to convince them concerning the fact that they had sin and unrighteousness that needed to be redeemed. They already had that foundation. To the Jews and those in the synagogues, he came showing them that God had kept his covenant promise, had sent the promised Messiah, his own son, who had redeemed them through his perfect obedience, death, and resurrection. Paul could start there when he preached the gospel in the synagogues. With the Athenians, though, Paul had to start on a more basic level. He had to address the crowd and expose them to the one true God who made them, who loved them, and who had loved them especially by sending his own son to redeem them too. He met them where they were, laying a foundation of faith by preaching the truth to them. And in doing so, Paul gives a very helpful example for us as we think about how we are called to engage people around us with the gospel as well. And to this end, I want to deal with Paul's sermon in five points. Now, that's a little intimidating, but there's really no other way to break this sermon up. So we're going to be looking at five movements, five parts in Paul's in Paul's sermon that make five important points to us. So first of all, Paul exposes the futility of the plight of man. Second, he makes the unknown known. Third, he sets the record straight about worship. Fourth, he proves this all with the fact of the resurrection. And finally, he causes us to consider how we are to respond to this gospel of grace. I want to press through these things. The reason this, this, is, this sermon is one of the most important and helpful examples for us as we seek to reach a secular world with the truth of the gospel. For many people, it, the, the, the reality is that in America, it is growing. Ignorance of God is growing. And we have to oftentimes start here 
with the fact that there is one God who made you. Because showing why you need a Savior requires that foundation first. So this is a very helpful text. I hope that it will stick with you and that you will take lessons from this as you seek to reach your friends and your neighbors, even your own family members, with the truth of the gospel. So let's begin with the futility of the plight of man. We, as people, we were made to worship. The book of Genesis tells us that God made us in his own image, which means in part that we were created to know God, and to satisfy ourselves in him. Worship is not just what we do here on a Sunday when we sing. Worship is a way of life. It is the pursuit of God, living in obedience to him. It is loving God and his excellence. After Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sin's mastery came over the human race, the purpose of worship was not removed. Sin has corrupted us, but it has not removed that innate calling from us. Blaise Pascal captures the longing that is in the heart of men very well when he says, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. Pascal is right on there. Even though these desires that we have within us cannot be satisfied by anything but God, that has not kept anyone from trying to fill that void with lesser saviors. That is the plight of religious effort, which we are, which we are right to want to distance ourselves from. If there's anything to be said about the men of Athens besides the fact that they love to talk, it's that they were very religious. As Paul stands more or, more or less on trial in this court of the Areopagus, he begins by drawing the attention of his listeners to this plain and evident fact. Athens, even if you traveled there today, you would see, was full of idols. It still is. It was known at this point in history for its beautiful and elaborate temples to the gods of Zeus and Athena, Apollo, Aphrodite, and many, many others. The religion of Athens is really what got Paul so stirred up to go into the synagogue and the marketplace in the first place, not waiting on Silas and Timothy to join him. Everywhere you looked in the city, there was an idol or an altar to some deity. They were religious in every point even so much that they had gone and erected an altar to the unknown God, presumably in an effort to hedge their bets that if there was a God they left out, they would be pacified by at least this meager effort. Paul had spent enough time in Athens observing their way of life to come across this altar. So he calls them religious because they were. But it's hardly a compliment. The word that he uses here occurs actually only one time in the New Testament, and it is not the same word that James uses to describe religion that is pleasing in God's sight in his letter. The Athenians may have taken Paul's observation as a compliment. They were proud of the fact that they were that religious. But we are quick to realize that Paul did not mean to commend them for their way of living. The Athenians had the appearance of religion, but they did not have a true knowledge or understanding of God. 
The way that the city was so full of idols really serves to show that they were lost in ignorance and enslaved to superstition. This altar to the unknown God in particular serves to show us how the men of Athens, how, how little the men of Athens really understood about the world and their place in it. Although it almost appears like Paul is saying something commendable about this city, since he uses this altar as a doorway to the gospel, the, the fact is that the state of religion in Athens really serves to show how poorly their attempt to grasp and grope their way to understanding had really ended up. As we, look, as we look at this altar to the unknown God, there are two things we can take away with us. First, we see something here about the pervasiveness of the glory of God in the created world. In Romans 1, Paul speaks about how God has plainly revealed himself in his creation. In, in, in Romans 1 verse 20, Paul explains that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, these are things that have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that all of mankind is without excuse. There is no one in the world who will be able to plead innocent to God on the grounds of ignorance. If people are blind to the reality of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God, it is not because he has not exposed himself to them, but because they have suppressed the truth by their own unrighteousness. So it is not good for anyone to go on in that ignorance, because the scriptures tell us that we will all give account to God and we will all face his judgment according to that revelation which has been clearly revealed to us. The second thing we can take from, from this situation and from the fact that this altar was in Athens is that we see something about the divine image and the longing that is in the hearts of people for God. When sin entered the world and the mastery of the flesh came upon humanity, it brought death and disorder, but it did not remove that part of us that knows that we were made and purposed for more than the fleeting vanities of a temporary life. Satan may use the temporary pleasures of this world to blind us and deaden us to that fact, but he can never remove the sense of the eternal from our being. Inwardly, we are aware of that God-sized hole that is within us. We can never satisfy our th ourselves with anything else. Though we may try, there is nothing to fill that void. The mere presence of this altar, despite the fact that the city was already so full of gods and idols, is a testament to the fact that the people of Athens felt that draw within themselves. And it sets us up for Paul's purpose, which is to make the unknown known, which is our second point here. The religion of Athens was really, at, at its core, little more than superstition. The Athenians worshipped what they did not know, and it led them into all sorts of error. They worshipped gods of their own making, who could not provide them with ultimate truth, hope, or salvation. Paul's goal was to introduce them to the one true God. His goal was to make what was unknown to the Athenians known to them. I love the way that Paul uses the culture of Athens to connect with them about the truth. And calling them very religious, we know he's not really paying them a compliment, 
but he is making a very accurate assessment of their situation. Paul had taken the time to understand the world from their point of view. And having observed this altar, he saw an opportunity to shed true light into their situation. Imagine it this way. Imagine standing in a hallway that is full from floor to ceiling with pieces of carefully crafted stained glass. The hallway has no light of its own, but it is still lit because there is clearly light outside shining into it. Now, straining through those pieces, you cannot see really the world that is outside of this hallway. You know there is something there, but defining what that is is difficult. So you talk with others that are in the hallway with you, and you go back and forth arguing about what could be out there, but none of you can really know what that is. You know there's something there, but without a clear view to it, you can never really know it. But then all of a sudden, someone comes into this hallway, and they touch one of the panes of glass, and suddenly you realize there's a door that has been there all along, and they open it. And for the first time, you see the light in its purity shine inside this hallway. And it is greater and more glorious than you had ever imagined. That, in a sense, is what happened when Paul stood before the Athenians and told them about the one true God. In verse 23, Paul uses this altar to the unknown God to Tell the men gathered on this hill, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I'm here to tell you about what you have been groping about, not finding, never satisfying yourself. I'm here to open that door for you to see the God who is. Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one, na- one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, what, what is Paul doing here? Well, before he can speak to the Athenians about their sin, or explain to them the significance of Jesus Christ, or call them to faith and repentance, he had to start with the reality of who God is. The Greeks had a very sophisticated religion that was based on myth and legend, but it wasn't built on facts. Even they felt how their system of beliefs was lacking. They knew that they did not have a clear understanding of the ultimate. That's why they had stopped arguing about it and just decided, well, what's the best way for us to live? Paul, on the other hand, based on God's own self-revelation, preaches to the Athenians that there is only one God. And he tells them seven things about this God. First, he tells them that God is the creator of the world who made it and everything in it. This is important because at this day and time, it was pretty popular for people to understand that gods were regional, that one God ruled this area and another God ruled this area. And when those two areas went to war with each other, 
It just proved who was the stronger God. Now, Paul is saying, no, the world and all that was in it was created by one God. And that is essential because that means the Greeks are accountable to this God. He goes on to tell them that God is the sovereign ruler of this world. He is not the God of the deists who just creates the world, winds it up, and walks away. No, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign. He is king. Third, Paul explains that God cannot be contained by man-made houses or temples. God doesn't need to get out of the rain. He makes the rain. He doesn't live in a stone temple as ornate as this was. He has made all things. Fourth, Paul tells them that this God is self-sufficient. Unlike the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, he had no needs to be met by the services of his creatures. He is not needy. He is not contingent. Fifth, Paul credits God as the creator of all mankind, not just one people group, but of all man, giving life to all. Sixth, Paul describes how God rules over the affairs of men, appointing places and times for all things, raising one nation up and putting another nation down according to his sovereign will and his sovereign plan. And seventh, he establishes for these Athenians that God's desire is for his creatures, that men and women everywhere might seek him and know him. Now, it's notable to see that Paul doesn't stop to prove any of these truth statements about God except the last. He states each of these as clear and evident facts. These are doctrinal statements taken from Scripture which are stated here to move us quickly to the gospel. Paul didn't make these things up. The God he is speaking to the Athenians about is not a God of his own making. If you had pressed Paul on any of these points, he would have happily proved to you from the scriptures themselves that these things were true. But we see here a place and a role for doctrinal statements, how they contain truth for us and and summarize a great deal of scripture for us, to help us hold to these things. Paul is doing that right here. His goal, though, is to get to Christ. And so he states each of these things very clearly for these Greeks to make the one true God known to them. Now, the final point that he makes is very important because it's the tie-in between what Paul has stated about who God is And the reason he has had this burden to tell the Athenians about this God. He says that God's desire is for them to know him. For some time, God had allowed the nations of the world to grasp about in the darkness of their sin. He had given them the unquestionable testimony about himself, about his existence through his world. Paul says that God has not set himself far off from them, and to prove that, He actually quotes from their own philosophers to say, In him we live and move and have our being, and for we are indeed his offspring. These are philosophers that the Athenians would have recognized as authorities and wise men. And so by by drawing from them, Paul is saying, Look, God is not so far from you. He has not left himself without a witness. He means for you to know him, and that is why I have come. This is the true God that the Athenians should have been worshiping. 
God had blessed the city in so many ways in spite of the fact that they did not know him but had rejected him for their own wisdom and understanding, for false gods. And now Paul is here through the kindness of God's providence and he's opening the truth up for them, exposing them to the reality of the one true God. And he does this, we see the third point, to set the record straight about our relationship with God. Having spoken to the Athenians about the supremacy of God, even going so far as to incorporate some of their own respected thinkers into his argument, we now see in this third movement in his sermon that he begins to reason with the Athenians on the basis of, of this to see the madness of their religious behavior. Look at verse 29. Paul says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine image is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Gold, silver, marble, they are beautiful, but they are not alive. God made man in his own image to reflect his glory. He condemns idol worship in the Old Testament because there is no idol, there is no image that could communicate who he is to us. In our sin, mankind rejected the beauty of God for lesser things, even things of our own making. And so Paul's appeal to the Athenians is to look at what they're doing. Their temples, their altars may have, been a hot, may have made them a hot spot for tourism, but they were in reality lost in a lie. They were caught in the trap of vanity fair, spending their lives on things that would not last and would not matter in the end. Paul's appeal to reasonable men is to see that they were made for more than this. They were made for the true living God. They were made to bear his divine image, to know him even as we are known by him. That is what Paul is trying to awaken the Athenians to. Stop with the madness. Stop wasting your lives on myths. Stop spending your hours talking and not actually setting your foot on the truth. Stop giving your heart to lesser things. Know God and live. What an important lesson for our own culture. You are more than your social media profile. You are not your gamer score. You are not what society thinks about you. Be done with those vanities. Do not put your hope in the treasures that are here today and gone tomorrow. You were made to know God and to love God. Seek your satisfaction there. You will not be disappointed. A day is coming when God will hold all men and women accountable for how they have used their lives. Life is a gift. It's to be used according to the purpose God has given it. For some time, God had allowed the nations to go in their own way. He had not left himself without a voice or without a witness. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is not one corner of the earth that you can travel to where you will not find the impression of God's fingerprint on the world. It is there, and people have seen it. You go to any nation, any people, they will recognize there's something bigger than what we see. Out of the nations, God called Abraham and set him and his descendants apart. 
by taking Israel for his own people, the world got to see something of the power and the glory of God in them. But that blessing then grew and improved in yet another way. God sent his own son into the world, Jesus Christ. And in verse 30, Paul explains to the Athenians, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. The message here is clear. The Athenians, by having this altar to the, un- to the unknown God, had admitted that there were things they didn't know. Had, they had admitted that there were things that they did not understand. And Paul is here to expose them to the truth. The God they did not know had made himself known. And his desire was that all should repent and come to a saving knowledge of the truth. In doing so, Paul's message to the Athenians and to us is that they would escape the coming judgment. The time of ignorance is over. The time of Christ has come. And God brought Paul to the Athenians at this time with this word, calling them to forsake former things and to live in the light of Christ. The Athenians may have been religious, but their religion was wrong, and it was leading them to hell. A way of escape had been prepared for them, and Paul is there preaching to them to come to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And that brings us to our fourth point, the proof of the resurrection. What made Paul's message verifiably true? How would you, if someone were to ask you, how do you know? that what you say about God, that the scriptures you say you believe, how do you know that they are trustworthy? What would you tell them? Well, I believe, but why? Why do you believe? Out of the many men who had come to Athens with their own philosophy, touting their own religion and their own gods, why should the Athenians have believed Paul and obeyed this call to repentance and faith? What would you have said? What convinced you? Well, in the second part of verse 31, Paul gives the answer. Of this, so all these things I've said to you, of this, God has given assurance to all, wow, there we go, to all, by raising him, that's Jesus, from the dead. The proof, according to Paul, of the coming judgment, the proof of the effectiveness of God's work of salvation, the proof of the good news, which calls men and women everywhere to repentance and faith, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our faith has a resting place in the risen Lord. The fundamental conviction that anchors our faith as believers is the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. This is what sets Christianity apart from the myths of every other religion. We do not put our hope in myth or legend. We do not put it in story. We put it in the historical work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. He lived and he died, being crucified for sin in accordance with the scriptures. 
and he rose again and has been exalted at the right hand of God in accordance with the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul sets that hope in perspective, saying this, that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found to be even misrepresenting God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ. And if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But, but, glorious but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. The resurrection of Christ is what vindicates our faith. It vindicates his death and his cross, that it removes sin from us. It proves to us the fact that he is the Son of God. It is the victory that has overcome the power of Satan and set us free from the power of sin over us. In Christ, God did the impossible He broke down the barrier of sin that was between us and him. He brought life and salvation to the dead. As Christians, that's where our hope stands. We are a people of the risen king. Our confidence in the authenticity of God's word, our conviction that judgment is in fact coming on the world, our hope of salvation from that judgment, our message that we preach, our experience of the Holy Spirit, our life together in Christ as a church, it all stands on the resurrection of Jesus. His life vindicates our hope. The empty tomb is essential to us. Because our faith doesn't stand on cleverly devised myths. It stands on historical realities and the power of God displayed in Christ. So what do we do with that? That brings us to our fifth point, responding to this gospel of grace. Now, Paul had much more to say to the Athenians. But when they heard him say that God raised Jesus from the dead, it seems that the scoffers in the crowd cut him off. Luke says that some mocked him. Others said in true Athenian fashion, oh, okay, we'll we'll hear you again on this. Others in the crowd, though, believed the testimony. And in verse 34, Luke says that some of the men joined him and believed, including one man named Dionysus, who is apparently on the council that presided over these debates in the Areopagus, which is saying something, and also a woman named Damaris. Now, we don't have any other record of these two people, but they were notable in the city of Athens, and so Luke thinks it's important for us to understand that here. The response in Athens really is just as Jesus portrayed in his parable of the four soils. Some who heard the gospel were hardened to it, those who mocked the message of the resurrection, no sooner had the, had the word fallen on them, but Satan swooped down and snatched it away from them. Their hearts were hard, and the gospel had no place in them. They didn't care. They rejected Christ, they mocked God, and they continued on their way to destruction. Others were at least receptive to the gospel, not rejecting it out of hand, but they put it off to pursue other things. As far as they were concerned, the gospel was just one more philosophy among philosophies, one more religion among religions. And so while they were willing to be entertained by it, they weren't willing to believe it. But then there were men and women who heard Paul declare the gospel to them, and they believed it. As he left the Areopagus, they go with him. 
They received the word of the gospel. It took root in their hearts. And so they shed off the ignorance of their former way of thinking, and they came to know the one true God who sent his beloved son to save them. The gospel is more than a story. It is more than a religion. It is the good news that the God who made the world and everything in it, the God of holiness and righteousness, whom we have offended with our sin and our rebellion against him, has not abandoned us, but in love has sent his only begotten son into the world to save the lost and to restore us to a right relationship with him. It's through faith in Christ that we are delivered from the wrath to come, and it's through Christ that we enter into real life in a right relationship with the God who made us. This hope stands on the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. He really came. He really lived a perfect life in obedience to the law of God. He really fulfilled what was said about him in the law and prophets. He really suffered on the cross for our sin. He really rose again from the grave on the third day. He really showed himself to many witnesses, Paul included. He really ascended into heaven. He really rules and reigns at the right hand of God, and he really is coming back to judge the world and to make all things new. These things are true. The question is how will we respond to them? The gospel is only good news for us if we believe it and if we obey it. It will do us no good to be like the mockers of Athens or like those who put it off to say, you know, I'll think about it. I'll come back tomorrow. Every day we grow closer to the day of the Lord. Each breath brings us nearer. So how will you respond? If you are a believer, then hold fast to this truth and recognize that we have been given a task and a purpose to share this good news of God with others. And if you are not a believer, then let today be the day. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we are here because of the gospel, one way or another. And I just want to come before you, Lord, and thank you for the witness of Paul, which in your sovereign will, you chose to have these words copied down for us so that we could learn from them and grow in them. And Lord, as we stand before you, we thank you that our faith is not in vain because it is established on the fact of Jesus' resurrection. And Lord, there are many things in this world we don't understand, many things about you that we do not have full comprehension of. And how could we? You are infinite. But this we know, that you loved us and sent your Son, and you have vindicated him on the cross and in his, in his resurrection. You have exalted him setting him at your right hand, giving him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and tongue confess that he is Lord to your glory. Father, there is the whole reason we can call you Father is because of that. And we want to come before you, Lord, because our hearts are in agony over the world around us because there are so many pursuing false ideas and false gods, false pursuits that will not satisfy them. And you have placed us as an embassy of your kingdom here on earth. And our job, Lord, is to make Christ known. And we do this 
in humility, knowing that we can't change one person's mind. We can't make one person's heart come to life any more than we can walk out to a graveyard and raise the dead. But Father, you do have that power. And you have shown us that in the work of Christ. Lord, this morning we get to rejoice in how you've done that in Bryson's life. And as we celebrate his step of faith and his desire to be a disciple of Christ and his following him, Lord, we pray that he would grow and develop into a great man of God. We pray that he would pursue you and know you. And Lord, we pray as one body that you would make us faithful in the pursuit of Christ's glory and that through our faithful witness that you would bring many more men and women to know Christ as their king and he would satisfy their souls. And we pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.